My name is Harrison Wheeler, and this is Technically Speaking. This show is recorded live in San Francisco and produced in collaboration with Dave Clark at Studio Pod Media. Our show coordinator is Deanna Marinci, with additional editing and music presented by Notalab. This episode of Technically Speaking is sponsored by Automatic, the people behind WordPress.com, Jetpack, WooCommerce, Tumblr, and more. Automatic's 1,400 people hail from 79 countries and speak 99 languages. Their open source software products democratize publishing and commerce so that anyone with a story can tell it and anyone with a product can sell it, regardless of income, gender, politics, language, or country. More than 1 billion people use Automatic products every month. Automatic also contributes directly to WordPress, the open source project that powers over 40% of websites on the internet. If you're ambitious, energetic, and driven by a passion to help people, you can make a visible, profound, and lasting difference working at Automatic. Visit automatic.com to check out the latest job listings today. That's A-U-T-O-M-A-T-T-I-C.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the second day of Technically Speaking during SF Design Week, aka San Francisco Design Week. I am your host of the Technically Speaking podcast, Harrison Wheeler. And today I have Maurice Cherry as a guest. Super excited to have you on board. I've got like a really interesting story about this. So like today is one of those things that, in my opinion, kind of manifests itself probably five years ago. So the first ever podcast that I was ever featured on was Revision Path. And I remember just kind of, we were chopping it up after the show. And I think it was actually around this time, around May, June-ish. And we were actually talking about, hey man, it'd be amazing if we could do something in San Francisco at the time. I had just moved out to San Francisco. And you know, when I took my shot in terms of getting this podcast during SF Design Week, you were definitely the first on my list to be on the show. And I'm so grateful for you to be here. Well, thank you to me. Thank you for having me. I think this is going to be a fun conversation. And, you know, just to kind of give everyone a bit of a lay of the land here, if this is your first day joining, we had our first broadcast yesterday with Alyssa Hart, as well as Mercy Bell during the Take Care. And we had a great conversation around mental health. Every single day of the week, I'll be having different guests at 11.30 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. So tomorrow at the same time, I'll have guests on through the rest of the week, and it's going to be a great time. And just to kind of move into the show, Maurice, why don't you give folks just a brief introduction about yourself before we head into the questions? Sure. So my name is Maurice Cherry. Like Harrison said, I have a podcast called Revision Path, where I interview Black designers, developers, and digital creatives from all over the world. I've been doing that now since 2013, so we're a little over eight years old. Uh, Revision Path is also the first podcast to be included in the Smithsonian's archives for the National Museum of African American History and Culture. About myself, my background is mostly in the STEM fields. I have a bachelor's degree in mathematics from Morehouse College. I have a graduate degree in telecommunications management from Keller Graduate School. I've also had my own design studio. I did from 2008 to 2017 called Lunch. And currently, as of this recording, I am unemployed. Hey. Uh, I'm between gigs right now, but I start near the end of this month at Nava 
as a content strategist. I'll be really looking forward to that. So you're currently transitioning. You're in fun employment as of right now. Mm -hmm. So very happy that you could bring your whole self <laughs> to the show. <laughs> as we kind of get through, I, I kind of want to, it's actually a very appropriate time for these, uh, these questions. What is something that you're really looking forward to now that you've have some time off to kind of decompress and evaluate things? Oh man, I am looking forward to doing nothing. <laughs> I mean, just in terms of work and the podcast, I do a lot of stuff. I'm looking forward this week to really doing nothing. I even already went ahead and got the next few episodes of the show produced so I could have yeah. ample time to do absolutely nothing. I'll probably catch up on some PlayStation games. Yeah. There's some games that I bought, like I bought Fuser a while ago. Yeah. I still have Persona 5 Royal that I haven't even like scratched the surface of. Have lunch with friends. I had lunch with a friend earlier today, Taco Tuesday. So we nice. had lunch and and drinks. So that was fun. I get to catch up with people now that folks are vaccinated, yeah. you know, going out and stuff. That's pretty much it. Like, I'm just going to relax these next two weeks. I don't have any sort of a real game plan in mind. That's good. That's the way to do it. Like in terms of like <laughs> your, your PlayStation games, what kind of genre are you into? So I'm a, I'm a RPG action adventure. I guess you could say puzzle yeah. game person. Like I have, and it's funny because I really don't even play my my PS4 that much. Yeah. So mostly I have role playing games. Like I, I of course have the Persona series. Uh, started off with that on PlayStation Two with Persona Three, and then moved my way up to Four and Five. I mostly play my Switch a lot. Okay. I play my Switch a ton more than my PS4, and I don't know if that's just because it's more portable. But sure. Even with that, it's like I'm playing old school fighting games like King of Fighters or Street Fighter. Yeah. I might be playing some puzzle games. I'm a big fan of Picross. Oh yeah. Which is like this this Japanese sort of like puzzle crossword yeah. kind of game. Yeah, that's kind of where I'm I'm at right now. It's funny because I don't really consider myself that much of a gamer, but I will always for some reason have the latest gaming system. <laughs> <laughs> you want to have the option. Yeah, yeah. So like even now with the Switch, like I know I think like there might be a new version of the Switch coming out sometime soon. Yeah. I haven't even thought about getting a PS5 because I know it's not gonna fit in my like entertainment hutch. So I was like, uh, it's okay. I was like, yeah. I, I don't play my PS4 enough to warrant getting a PS5 yet. I feel like I will in the future, though. Yeah. I need to see some more games come out. I just, yeah, I just got the new Xbox and I switched from playing the one before that. And the the graphic changes are very, very minimal, right? Mm -hmm. So it really hasn't been too much of a justification outside of a minor bump in performance, right? Because you can play the games right away. There's some a little bit more detail, but all in all, nothing has changed too much. So I'm not yeah. really one to, I'm not really one to rush and get new consoles, but fairly disappointed considering I'm still playing the same games that were on the previous console. <laughs> I mean, for me, it's definitely about the games. It has yeah. to be a kind of game that I know I can really like sink into. Like the Persona games, for example, that's not a game you can just pick up and play in five minutes. Like you you're dedicating at least 30 minutes to an hour. Yeah. Every time you play that game on the flip side, like if I play Picross, that's something that honestly I do like near the end of the day to wind down because it's a game that you can kind of like detach from. You can just sort of focus on the puzzle and work that like I'll play that while listening to music or play yeah. that while listening to podcasts or something and just like mellow out. It's a very nerdy activity. Yeah. To, like be playing a puzzle game to relax, but 
<laughs> but that's normally what I'll do at the end of the day. Yeah. All good. So, so you mentioned podcasts, right? You produce your own. What are some other podcasts that you listen to outside of your own? Do you even listen to your own after you produce it? Like, how? how I is don't. That? I don't. I, so that's funny. I don't listen to my own podcast after I finish it because I I was there. Yeah. So I don't necessarily need to go back and listen to it. And I often will recall if someone mentions a show, I'll remember kind of what went on throughout the show sure. pretty much. Other shows I'm listening to, I actually have my phone right here, I can tell you. So I'm listening to the NPR Politics podcast, which I just kind of listened to that to get sure. the lay of the land in terms of news. Uh, the Atlantic has this podcast about the coronavirus called Social Distance that I'll listen to. I listen to Keep It from Crooked Media, Code Switch from NPR. Jill Scott has a podcast called J.Ill, the podcast. Okay. And it's an interesting show because, I mean, it's it's her and two of her friends. It's all from like a Black woman's perspective and point of view, which I don't get to hear that often. So it's good for me to listen to it because it reminds me of like, Hear my mom talk with my grandma or talk with her sister or something like that. I listen to 20,000 Hertz, which is a show around sound design. Um, and I also listen to this podcast called, <laughs> it's called True Story. Okay. Like T-R-U-U-S-T-O-W-R-A-Y. And I started listening to this out of the blue because they were covering, oh my God, they were covering the first season, I think, of The Real World. So oh. it's two guys that hosted Dave Holmes and Mike Dowdy, and they sort of do this like retrospective of old episodes. <laughs> so they did, I remember them doing like the first season of The Real World. They also did the reunion show that happened like this spring on Paramount Plus yeah. with the, the Real World Homecoming, I think was what it was called. And now they're trying to decide which season they want to do next. Like, do they want to do season two, which was in LA? Do they want to do season, no, season three was in San Francisco season four, which was in London, or season seven, which is in Seattle. So okay. they, they're going by what's available on Paramount because Paramount doesn't have a lot of the earlier, older seasons. So they're trying to figure out which one they want to do next. But those are the shows I'm listening to right now. I kind of rotate a lot of shows in and out, but yeah. those are my kind of like stable ones week after week. Yeah, that's a pretty pretty wide variety that you have there. Yeah, it's like some pop culture stuff. It's yeah. some news stuff. Oh, there's one from HBR called the HBR ID Cast. That's from yeah. uh, Harvard Business Review. So that's kind of about like business and work and stuff like that. So yeah. I have a pretty like eclectic mix, but I swap shows in and out. Like I'll listen to a lot of single episodes of podcasts, but won't necessarily subscribe. So I'm like in and out listening to a lot of shows. It's like the that's like the true Spotify approach <laughs> to podcasts, right? <laughs> So speaking of the Jill Scott, you're in Atlanta right now. Mm -hmm. And I really have to ask you, you know, Atlanta has a huge history of R&B and rap artists. Who are your favorites? I mean, I wouldn't be a true ATLian. I'm not from Atlanta, just to be yeah. clear for people listening, but I wouldn't be a true ATLian if I didn't mention Outkast. Like, yeah. they will still forever and always be my favorite. I also really like Janelle Monae. I I first met Janelle Monae when I was in college back in the early 2000s. And I remember buying her first CD, not, not the one where she was the Android, but like the one before that, I think it was called The Audition or something like that. Like I remember buying her very first CD for $5 yeah. on the strip at Clark Atlanta when I was in college. Wow. And I knew some of the people that she 
hung around within her crew. I know some of the folks that are in her crew now with Wonderland and stuff. Yeah. So I've, I've kind of like been able to track how she's grown from selling CDs all the way up to kind of where she is now. Those probably like right now are my favorites. I mean, I think, you know, Atlanta is such a big entertainment city in general. Like there's a lot of music that flows in and out of here. I would say that Atlanta probably has such a good underground R&B scene that a lot of people mm. may not be familiar with because there's different venues like there's City Winery or Churchill Grounds or other places where people are performing a lot of like somewhat hole in the wall type clubs. Yeah. But Atlanta has like a really like rich R&B and soul history. Like people think probably just hip hop when they think of Atlanta. But sure. There's like a, a strong hip hop scene here. There's a strong rock scene here. There's a strong jazz scene here. There's a lot of music just depending on what it is that you like. But I can't think of any contemporary folks though, because I'm old, man. I listen to a lot of, <laughs> listen to a lot of like old like brown liquor music. You know, I'm listening to like the spinners and stuff like that. So it, it varies. It depends on yeah. kind of what my mood is. But I'll always and forever come back to Outcast for something. I'll just find myself. Yeah. Thinking of a line or or something like that. And it just, you know, pops into my head or something. What's one of your favorite songs? Oh, man. Or is there oh, not one? one? I, like, I feel like this is like one of those top, what's, what's the top five hip hop artists of all time? No. <laughs> so it's probably either Crumbling Herb from Southern Playlist of Cadillac Music or, you know, I would say the entire AT Aliens album from start to finish because. It's easy to sort of pick songs out of that one. That was the one where they had the comic book cover and they really kind of leaned into this more like sci-fi, Afro-futuristic kind of bit. That whole album is an experience from beginning to end. Like, I almost tell people, like, you have to listen to it with no skips. You have to go all the way through to kind of like get the through line of it. But yeah, that whole album for sure. And the thing with Outkast and, and the whole kind of organized noise family is they begat so many great artists. We talked about Janelle Monae, but I mean, like, Goody Mob, Sleepy yeah. Brown, Joy. Well, Joy didn't really come out of Organized Noise, but like there's a, a ton of artists that have come out of there. So like that whole sound is like prolific in Atlanta through a lot of other other artists. Right. So speaking of prolific, you are a living legend. Okay. <laughs> and the reason I say that, for one, you've hit over 400 episodes on the Revision Path podcast, which is an amazing feat. Additionally, you are minted into African-American history by being in the Smithsonian. And so (laughs) if there was like a biopic made for Maurice Cherry, who would be the actor? Who would be the actor? I think... Who, who and you can't say you can't you can't be like you know you can't be like Michael B. Jordan, right? Like, no, 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 no. I'm <laughs> not be realistic. Probably like a younger Forrest Whitaker, probably. Uh, okay, yeah. Or yeah. like a younger Charles S. Dutton. Okay. Or yeah, like someone like that, probably. Yeah. yeah. Has, has anyone ever asked you this question before? Mm-mm, no. Oh, wow. I mean, you you had it like right <laughs> off the top of the dome. I'm, in, I'm I impressed. To, <laughs> I had to think about it a little bit. Like, who would it? Who would I have? Because I'm thinking of like actors like right around my. age. Actually, you know what? If I'm thinking of actors right around my age, yeah, probably Brian Tyree Henry because we both went to Morehouse together at okay. the same time. Yeah. So probably him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can think about it some more. You can. We we got the email. You can you can <laughs> type it up. Shoot it to me. 
And I will, I'll tweet it later. All right. <laughs> so look, I, I want to move back into whole, the whole revision path podcast. What exactly is the definition of a revision path and, and why did you start it? So the name revision path itself, like I wanted to go with a name, honestly, that either, well, for two reasons, I wanted to go with the name revision path. I wanted something that could sort of go with either design or development, because those were kind of the two particular kind of paths that I was looking at at the time. So like you think of a path in Illustrator, for example, and then of course you always have design revisions, but then also you think of a revision path for like code or like the path to a directory on a server or something like that. So I wanted something that was going to kind of be ambiguous in that way, first of all. Secondly, I picked that name and I sort of retconned this whole meaning of the revision path being sort of going off the beaten path. Like the Mm. fact that I'm talking to so many black designers and such that may not have been profiled in other design media. This is sort of a revision to that. But prior to revision path, I started an event called the black weblog awards. And that was something that started in 2004. We did our first installment in 2005, did that every year up until basically around 2010, 2011, where I sold it. And I just know from that project, the biggest issue that I had with really getting wider support for it, and I hate to say it, but the biggest reason is that it had Black in the name. Mm. And so a lot of people, because this was also around the time that Obama was running first for president, and there was all this stuff around things being post-racial. So if I'm coming up saying I have the Black Weblog Awards, the response (laughs) I would get is, but we're post-racial. Why do you need, why does it have to be a Black Weblog Awards? Why can't it just be the Weblog Awards. And I'm like, because those already exist and yeah. we're not there. So that's why I'm doing this. But I also just wanted to have something, honestly, that people wouldn't completely write off just because the name Black was in it. Like I wanted people to see the name revision path, see what it's about, and then have it click instead of them sort of writing it off just just from the name. Yeah. And, and, and what, was the, what was the second part of your question? Yeah. So, so why? Why did you start why? it? Yeah. I wanted to start it because I knew that there were other black designers and such out there, like peers of mine, contemporaries, et cetera, that were doing really great work that were just not getting any sort of recognition. I mean, the web back then, and this is pre-Twitter, pre-social media, there was not really a lot of ways for your work to be seen unless it was through a larger entity like a design organization or a design company or a magazine or something like that. And so because that sort of avenue to get these stories out there didn't really exist in a way that people could latch on to it, a lot of people's work just kind of went by the wayside. You know, it's been so interesting now to talk to people who were designing back then and then be able to bring them now to the present and share the work that they've done during that time when nobody may have really paid attention to it. And when I say nobody, I don't mean they were sort of languishing in obscurity. I mean that the general design community did not know that this person was doing this caliber of work or this level of work. And we're talking CDs, websites, logos, et cetera. For example, episode 400 with Brent Rollins. Brent Rollins did the logo for Mo Better Blues. He did the logo for Poetic Justice. He did the logo for Boys in the Hood. Would we have really known that unless, and I'm not saying through my interview specifically, sure. but during the time that he was making all this prolific stuff, the design industry was not, you know, he, was, he wasn't getting an AIGA medal. Right. He wasn't right. being featured in, you know, Design Eye or Step Magazine or anything like that. So just getting a chance to kind of bring these people into the, the limelight and let them have a chance to show off their work 
was a big reason why I wanted to do revision path is to give them an opportunity to say, this is who I am. This is what I do. And this is why it matters to me, because that perspective really had not been shared widely prior to that. Yeah. And I I think what's really fascinating even about that story is just like the intersection of just like cultural icons. These aren't just random movies. Like these are cultural iconic movies where design has also been adjacent. If you haven't even seen the movie, you've probably at least seen the title of them, right? Even, I think even all those rap albums, you know, you mentioned kind of AT Aliens. Like that is, that like when you see that album, you know exactly what it's about. And that was done by a black designer. That was done by D.L. Warfield. Yeah, exactly. The future of work is here at Automatic. The people behind WordPress.com Jetpack, WooCommerce, Tumblr, and more. Join a team of diverse global perspectives. Create the work environment and schedule that empowers you to perform at your very best. At Automatic, what matters is the work you produce, not how many hours you put in. Work from anywhere you choose. There are automatications working right now in 79 countries around the globe. The intellectual and cultural diversity that results is critical to the company's success. Automatic believes in constant learning and offers mentorship and personal coaching to support your growth. As a small company with a huge footprint, Automatic offers you the chance to have an impact and make a difference. If you're ambitious, energetic, and driven by a passion to help people, you can make a visible, profound, and lasting difference working at Automatic. Visit automatic.com to check the latest job listings. That's A-U-T-O-M-A-T-T-I-C.com. In terms of you interviewing more than 400 design practitioners around the world, what are some of the standout guests that you've had on the show? Oh, wow. Uh, I have to say Brent, not just because he was episode 400 and that was recent, but because a lot of Brent's work has influenced a lot of my work as a designer. Just the way that he depicted a lot of things around hip hop culture in this sort of retro futuristic sort of way with, you know, big swashy fonts and, and sort of like a 70s, 80s sort of aesthetic. I would see that in magazines. I would see that on television. And he was sort of the progenitor of all of that. Like that came from him. So him specifically, I would rate as one. Most recently, and this episode will come out in a few weeks, but I interviewed a shoe designer, a footwear designer that worked at Nike for 15 years. He's worked at Allbirds. He designed a couple of Yeezys. And like getting a chance to talk with him about footwear design. And like now he has his own studio and makes his own shoes, you know, and like talking about why shoes are such an important thing. Like, of course, people like sneaker culture and stuff like that, but you get into the intrinsic reason of like, why do people wear certain types of shoes? Even people that claim not to be fashionable have an opinion about shoes. You know, you're not going to just wear like clown shoes. You want to wear something kind of decent. Sarah Honey Young, I always have to mention, she's the homie. I've had her on the show three times now. And every time I've had her on the show, she's someone who I've known from way, way back, like year 2000 at least. And to see her evolution as a creative, moving from New York City to Pittsburgh, shifting her focus more into like DJing and photography, and like just seeing her evolution over the years has been something that's been great to document on the show. God, who else? I mean, I think anybody that I interview internationally is always interesting just to see how design is 
is sort of portrayed through their eyes and through their particular community. I, I'm trying to think the last international interview I had was, actually, it comes out in a few weeks. I'm talking about future interviews, but I interviewed a Trinidadian designer who is currently in Switzerland, in Zurich, getting her degree in design. And so to talk about her shift from like Trini culture to Swiss culture and how that is influenced in her design and how does she bring some of the islands into this Nordic environment. I mean, that kind of like juxtaposition of things like that, I find just super interesting how folks are bringing their culture into their design wherever they are. Right. It, it just also kind of shows how much evolution is still continuous in sort of like design and what it means and what the output of it looks like. You know, I've always loved having these conversations with folks on the show because I know that I learn a little bit of uh, not only about that person, but just in general. And so what are some learnings that you've had? What are some big themes that you've really kind of seen, you know, throughout the tenure of your show? Oh, I think the biggest thing that I've learned is that there still needs to be more apprenticeship, I think, for Black designers. That's different from sponsorship. That's different from an internship. But like actually having a space to allow someone to maybe shadow someone or work under someone as an apprentice to give them the space to fail and to mess up. One thing I've I've seen, I think, not just from designers on the show, but even from my own personal experience is that Black designers often are tasked to kind of have to get it right the first time. There's very little, if any, room for error if you're the only Black designer on your team and you do something and it doesn't go well. No one's going to say, oh, well, we'll just, you know, kind of fix this up later or something like that. That gets put on you and every other Black designer (laughs) that may come across that company. Like now you have to represent the race. And that's a big burden to have, especially if you're just starting out at a place or you're just starting out in your career. And so I think apprenticeship is important because it allows you kind of a safe space to learn and to work under someone without making a mistake that could potentially end your your job or end your career, you know? So I think that's something that I would love to see more of, particularly from studios. I know that there are a lot of Black-owned studios. We've had several on the show, but offering some level of apprenticeship to new designers to kind of get their feet wet, learn the business in like a safe and kind of nurturing environment that still pushes and challenges them, mind you. We're not necessarily baby birding them information, but you know, giving them the opportunity to do this in a space that's not so cutthroat or hostile. I mean, I think for anyone, particularly for Black people in general, like the corporate world is something we really have to learn. Like we have to learn how to assimilate into that, how to become a part of that, how to speak the language, how to dress, how to do this, how to do that, whatever, because it's not really made with us in mind. We have to sort of conform to that. And so apprenticeships hopefully take some of the stress off of that and still allow you to kind of do your best work or at least ramp up to doing your best work in an environment that allows you to do that without the slightest transgression, you know, costing you your gig. Right. I'm curious, is that something that you've kind of seen? Is that, is the work environment piece, is that something that's been thematic throughout a number of guests? Is that more of a personal thing? Maybe kind of take us through that. It's kind of been, I I mean, certainly for entrepreneurs and for studio owners, I've seen that. Like, there's someone who I just interviewed recently, the footwear designer I mentioned, and like his studio is largely an apprenticeship sort of collective. Like he knows people that can do certain things, but he also has a lot of young creatives that he works to nurture in a space where they realize that this work can be fun. 
and they can bring their culture into it and it's not a bad thing. Whereas if they were maybe at a more traditional agency structure, that might be frowned upon. I also think, I mean, I've seen it, yeah, mostly around entrepreneurs and studio owners, not so much, I think, around folks that are already in-house, but I think just based on what their individual stories have been and how they've sort of come into their particular roles, mentorship is also an important part of that. So it's a different level of support at that age. It's not necessarily about shadowing someone, but having someone that may have walked the road that you have walked and can sort of give you information on like, these are some pitfalls, or these are some things you may need to know, or here's how you can handle this situation that you may not know about, but I've been through. So they're helping out sort of like in in different sorts of ways. Yeah, yeah. So I, I love, this is a good segue. So you were born and raised in Selma, Alabama, which has a pretty prolific history in terms of American history. And I don't think it's necessarily too positive in terms of the, the situation surrounding it, but it's definitely more known for that than design. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and so maybe kind of take us through sort of like with that journey to get into design, right? Because I would assume you've had to do a lot of discovery yourself to sort of figure out what that is. And so maybe kind of take us through that. And I, I'd also would love to hear your advice for designers that are trying to navigate their way into an industry where there aren't people that might look like them or someone that has the expertise to, let's say, mentor them along that road? I mean, it's a small southern town in south central Alabama. It's 50 miles west of Montgomery. It's the, the county seat of Dallas County. And yeah, it's not a design town at all. People mostly know it for the Edmund Pettus Bridge and Bloody Sunday. I mean, my discovery of design while I lived in Selma was largely through a couple of different sources. One was through my older brother, who is a very great artist. He paints, he sketches, he sculpts. He has like amazing, phenomenal, God-given artistic talent. So a lot of that came from just watching him be able to do his thing. Also, I mean, we got a lot of magazines back home because we didn't, we didn't have, I don't remember us getting cable until, I don't know, I might've been I might have been a teenager, like in high school when we got cable for the first time and stuff. So like a lot of the, uh, I did just a lot of reading. And so a lot of that came through magazines. We had subscriptions to The Source, Vibe, but we also were getting things like Sports Illustrated. We were getting Consumer Reports used to put out this magazine called Zillions, which was like a Consumer Reports for kids. And so there were a lot of magazines that I would read to just sort of learn about a life and a culture outside of Selma, Alabama. And then also, this is sort of, from 95 on, it's kind of the advent of the the personal computer and internet. And so I could go to the library or I could go to my school's computer lab or I could go to my mom's job, had a computer lab also, she was at a school. And I could spend hours in the lab just like surfing the web. And I mean, this is the early pre-2000s web which is <laughs> it's very much the wild, wild west. I mean, you, were, you really were left to your own devices for a lot of things. And so I taught myself a lot about HTML and sort of just really just figuring stuff out. Like, I think for me, having that level of curiosity is what got me interested in really what design could be. Because at that time, I had heard of a graphic designer and had even started doing some graphic design while I was in high school. Like I designed our school newspaper. So I had opportunities to kind of get hands on, you know, with stuff like that. But it wasn't at the time something that I really looked at 
as a profession. I was always just kind of doing it as a hobby on the side. Even when I went off to college and I told my professor at the time, my advisor actually, that I wanted to be a web designer, he told me that the internet was just a fad and that nobody is, is going to be interested in this. Like if you want to make web pages, what's a web page? Nobody's going to be interested in that. And told me that if that's what I really wanted to focus on, that I should just change my major, which I ended up doing. But I still kind of just did stuff on the side. I designed my scholarships webpage when I was in college. I did a, a few sort of like logos and things like that, really just sort of teaching myself, going to Barnes & Noble, getting one of those Photoshop's tips and tricks books, opening it up, copying stuff down, taking it back home to use on my crack version of Photoshop that I downloaded off of LimeWire or Kazaa hoping it didn't give my computer a virus and trying to like teach myself how to do this because there were, there weren't, unless you went to like an art Institute or something like that, there weren't really any schools that showed you how to do this. And I mean, I was at a really good school. I was at Morehouse on scholarship. I wasn't going to just leave that to just go to art school and learn this stuff. So I was really kind of teaching myself. The second part of your question around like, how can people sort of break into this field I mean, for me, the way that I've done it has been through creating my own projects. That's been the way that's helped for me is to sort of take the knowledge that I've learned and create something myself and then let that be the thing that gets people noticing the work that I'm doing. So, for example, the first big project like that was the Black Weblog Awards. I mean, I started doing that. All of a sudden, we're hearing from NPR. We're hearing from God, some celebrities that contacted me in those early days, we heard from Questlove at one point, we heard from RuPaul, we heard from Tyra Banks, like in those early, early days from Kanye. Yeah. So like- Wait, Kanye, it Kanye to, wanted to be on it? <laughs> Kanye had won Best Celebrity Blog Ah, uh, yeah. one year. I forget which year it was, but like someone from his camp did reach out. I was like, Wow. wow. <laughs> Kanye had a really so, like popular blog back in the early 2000s, if I remember correctly. Yeah, he did, I think he was blogging back then, probably. But for me, it's been like doing these sorts of projects that allow others to see the breadth of my work. And I think you start, I think you're starting to see a similar thing happen now, particularly through like what YouTubers do, what TikTokers do, et cetera. They're basically creating their own programming and things that they want to see because they may not have a job that's going to let them express themselves that way. So they have to kind of make their own thing that shows this is what I'm capable of. This is like from my imagination. This is what I'm able to do with the skills that I have. And so doing projects like that have always helped me to sort of get other people to notice. I would recommend that for anyone. If there's an idea that you really want to pursue, instead of looking for a job that's going to allow you to do it, Find a way to make your own project out of it, no matter how big or small that is, and just execute on it. It doesn't have to be perfect. I mean, there should be like a gradual upgrade path to get to where you want to go, but make your own project, get started on it, tell other people about it, and just keep at it. You know, that's that's what's really helped for me. Yeah. And I mean, maybe RuPaul or Questlove will reach out. You just never know. Yeah. But it's important to just get something <laughs> out into the world. Yo, Hopefully it, they don't reach out with a cease and desist. Now that did happen with Microsoft. <laughs> the second year that we did the Black Weblog Awards, uh, I, I could I could tell this story. The designer that we had used had like completely ripped off one of their campaigns, and Microsoft had reached out, and I was like, "Oh, Microsoft reached out," and it was from their lawyer cease and desist using this design. I was like, "Damn, <laughs> how could you mess me up like that?" And 
at this point, the awards were over, so it was easy to kind of like phase it out. But you know, don't get attention for the wrong reasons. Yeah, yeah, wise, <laughs> wise, wise advice. And I appreciate that story and that advice because it's very, very rich in in history too, as well. And I think one of the things that that kind of comes to mind for me is when we talk about the future episodes. So Maurice and I actually have an episode that we've already recorded and it goes pretty deep into that. So definitely look out for that in the coming months. But in our last conversation, we touched on this a little bit and it was about the work that you did on Revision Path, the work that you've done on the presentation around where the black designers. I really want to kind of maybe focus on like passing the torch and what that means to you and maybe kind of describe how you maybe picked up the mantle as well, because I know that Cheryl Miller also had some influence and you all have, have had uh, a relationship there. Maybe kind of take us through that and, and maybe what the future might look like, or maybe some of the things that you foresee being excellent opportunities for aspiring and established designers, black designers moving forward. It's so interesting how, how that happened with, with Cheryl. So to give some backstory, in 2015 at South by Southwest Interactive, I gave a presentation there called Where Are the Black Designers? I started putting that presentation together in 2014, partially because I was part of AIGA's Diversity and Inclusion Task Force, and that gave me some access to some AIGA archives for things that I was doing. And I wanted to put a presentation together really kind of as a distillation of all of the questions that I kept getting from companies and other people that would come to Revision Path. Like they would listen to the episodes, but then they would also get on Twitter and be like, well, where are the Black designers? Or we're trying to find Black designers that we don't know where they are. you know. And I'm like, well, let me just do a presentation to kind of hopefully not squash the question, but at least give you some like insight into it. And as I really started doing my research, that was how I discovered Cheryl. Now, when I had first reached out to Cheryl, she was retired pretty much. Like she had done all the work that she had done in her past as a designer. She was a theologian. And I had like discovered she had a book on Amazon, like a kind of an autobiography on Amazon. And she was like content living her life. And I sort of reached out to her like, hey, I'm Maurice, I'm doing this presentation and I'd love to talk to you and learn more about your work and everything. And that sort of started the conversation, which then started the relationship between Cheryl and I that sort of continued on to this day as it relates to uplifting the work that she's done in her staff, you know, as a real pioneer for Black women in the design industry. That's how it really like first started to come about. And since then, I've done an update to the presentation. I did it in 2020 at the AIGA Design Conference. People want to check either of those talks out. They're both available on YouTube, absolutely free. Go check them out. It's funny you mentioned passing the torch because I don't give those talks anymore. I'm like, they're on YouTube. Go forth (laughs) and listen. I don't want to have to kind of keep bringing it up in, in that way. But also, you know, with Cheryl doing the work that she's done and talking about kind of the next generation and like who she sees coming up, It's important to sort of pass that torch because I think what ends up happening with, let me put it this way, it's a byproduct of digital design and that a lot of the work that we do is fairly ephemeral. It will get overwritten, redesigned, et cetera. And unless we as practitioners are keeping our own archives, probably no one else will. Maybe the, the Internet Archive will have a record of it, but if you don't keep your own records, then how are you supposed to know what the the work is that you've done and that people can see it? 
Cheryl, to her credit, kept meticulous records throughout her career. I mean, to the point now where they're part of Stanford's research library. Like she kept very meticulous records of the work that she had done, the people she talked to, contracts, proposals, all of that. People can go and see all of that sort of stuff. And so when I think about kind of passing the torch, it's to me like continuing the conversation, I think is important because certainly as design and technology have started to really sort of move forward this conversation around diversity now becomes important to both communities. Of course, we've seen over the past 10 years a lot of talk around diversity in tech. And diversity in design, I feel like, has always been sort of right behind that or right beside it in terms of importance. And so as those two fields become more merged, like design and tech become more merged, they end up sort of sharing and feeding into that sort of similar problem. So when you think about passing the torch, it's sort of been done now with what Mitzi Oku is doing yeah. with Where Are the Black Designers. In 2020, she started a conference that sort of takes the question that I posed in 2015 and continues on that. More so, I think, towards a like ally slash BIPOC sure. kind of lens. So it sort of takes that and, and maybe like branches it out a bit. But I think the question is still valid. I know I still get companies that email me asking, Where are the Black Designers? So it's still a question that kind of needs to be answered. But when you think about passing the torch, you should have a torch to pass, Mm. if that makes any sense. I mean, the reason that Cheryl, the reason I was able to really sort of feed off of what I did for my 2015 presentation was based off of Cheryl's work. I was able to read her 1985 thesis that she did for Pratt Institute that became the 1987 print article, which became the 1990 working journal for AIGA, which started the 1991 symposium, Mm. to even sort of get this conversation off the ground on a national level. Right. If none of that existed, or if I hadn't gone looking for it, or if I hadn't discovered Cheryl, I would be kind of starting from scratch. And like, that would be ahistorical, first of all, and it wouldn't tell the whole story. I think one of the things that, that I love about this conversation, too, is everything that you put out in the world builds on it, right? Yeah. And again, I think there's another piece to if you see that opportunity, make it happen yourself. Right. Because it's going to benefit somebody. I think at least I think nowadays, you know, you mentioned putting in the presentation and and being able to reference. That's very powerful within itself. And that's a tool. You know, if we look back, wasn't there. You actually had to have a person that kept that. And Mm -hmm. so. Whatever you do, and even like just kind of thinking about the the guests that you've had on the show, so many people are pushing that conversation of design and what it means and evolving it. It's very important to to really give back and allow folks to have access to it to really build more on that that future that we all envision we're included in. Yeah. And I mean now, you know, it's it's so great that we're seeing more books by black designers or books that are featuring black designers. We're seeing more podcasts and more conferences and events and things like that. You know, I mean, even what you and I are doing right now, 10 years ago, this would not, I wouldn't say five years ago, but certainly 10 years ago, this wouldn't be a thing. Yeah, You and I, two black designers talking at San Francisco Design Week on a stage like this. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, we'll look. And I've said this at the beginning of the show, you've been a huge inspiration for me, especially being within the product design realm, I felt that there was a huge need to have more representation in building that platform. And so I think there is something to anyone going out there and and providing more of that visibility that can inspire that next person 
to really build on having a, you know, a stronger voice and, and building more influence in that way. So maybe give the audience and the listeners, how might they get access to your podcast, you, like where, where is that available? Yeah. So I'm super easy to find. Just do a Google search for Maurice Cherry. I might be the first result. I don't know. But if not, you can go to mauricecherry.com. That's my website. I'm also on LinkedIn. Just search for Maurice Cherry. I'm on Twitter at Maurice Cherry, all one word. I have a Tumblr as well, which is kind of just like my random link blog that's at tumblr.com slash Maurice Cherry, I think. And then for Revision Path, I'm at revisionpath.com. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram under that. Just search for Revision Path. Awesome. And this is a great lesson on uh, personal branding, by the way. <laughs> Find your stuff. Stick to it. Preferably your first and last yeah. name. <laughs> Maurice, I know you, you've you got a couple weeks off before you move into your new gig. I don't want to take away from any of the time that you have to chill out. <laughs> Again, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Have a good one. All right. Thanks for having me.